Lazarus was a man loved by the Lord Jesus, yet Lazarus was ill. In fact, deathly ill. And because of this, his sisters who cared for him, Martha and Mary, uh, because of their deep concern, they managed to get word to the Lord Jesus, who they knew loved the family. They were in Bethany at the time. He was elsewhere. And he delayed in coming to them. This is a bit of a mysterious thing to us. If he loved them, why did he delay? We saw a little bit last week. He did so because he had a better idea. He was up to something that would redound to the glory of God, and that would be better for his disciples if, in fact, he delayed. Well, the time came when he determined uh, that he, in fact, was going to go to them. So he told the disciples who were present with him at this time, uh, I'm going to go back to Judea. And they were quite concerned and tried to discourage him from doing so because they remembered in Judea, Uh, His life was threatened by the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, They were concerned about him. And he, in a very interesting and persuasive way, explained to them, I'm not worried about it, neither should you, because he said, my days are numbered, not by some crazed uh, religious mob, not by circumstances. No, my my days are determined by, by the Father. And apparently he was successful in persuading them, and so... They decided to join him, and so that's the background. Let's pick up the story now. It's in John chapter 11 tonight, beginning in verse 16. We left off last week here. John chapter 11, verse 16. Here's how it begins. Therefore, Thomas, you've heard of him. When you think of Thomas, I'll bet you substitute or insert the adjective before his name. What word would you put before his name? Yeah, Doubting Thomas. You wouldn't be entirely wrong, but he's a little more than just that. We have to give him a bit of a fair shake. Though Thomas, I think, got off to a kind of a rocky start spiritually as we continue in the Gospel of John. I think we'll see. This should be encouraging to us. He really finished well. Well, therefore, Thomas, the text says, who is called Didymus. It's kind of an unusual second name. It means twin. Thomas probably had a twin brother or sister. And so that's why he's called Didymus. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, I don't know what construction you put on that. I'm going to put a good construction on it. He might be a little overly dramatic, a little pessimistic. I don't know. But at this time, doubting Thomas was ready to partner with the Lord no matter what the destiny might be. And so he decides to go with the Lord back to Judea and encourages the other disciples to do the same. So verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now the he, I'm sure you will agree, that's Lazarus. Now the Jewish custom upon someone dying was to bury within 24 hours, right away. Therefore, we could surmise if Lazarus was entombed for the four days indicated here, he was dead for four days. That's what the text says. Now, I'll tell you why I think this is important. In the day, there was a rabbinical tradition, something the rabbis believe, which I think you'll find, I do, to be a little unusual, but it it will make sense of the text, I think, a little bit. The rabbis believe that when someone dies, 
that person's spirit hovers around and over the deceased's body for three days. This is not a biblical thing. I'm just telling you, this is a rabbinical thing. They believed when someone physically passes, that person's spirit hangs around for three days in the hope of somehow being reunited with the person's body so as to somehow resuscitate that person. That was the belief. Now, knowing that, it makes sense to me that the Lord waited until Lazarus was entombed in excess of those three days so as to clearly indicate that Lazarus was really dead. Three days had passed, and if the rabbinical point of view was correct, that would have provided the three days in which Lazarus's dead body could have been reunited with his hovering spirit, and thus he would have been resuscitated. But he was really, really dead. It's four days. He's been entombed, and there's no mysterious spirit hovering over him. And so the need for Lazarus here, I think you'll see, was not for resuscitation. It was for resurrection. That was the point, it seems to me. And so the Lord waited until the fourth day so that no one would dare claim uh, this is kind of a, you've heard of these, like a near-death experience for Lazarus. He didn't really die. It's just near-death experience. So what the Lord Jesus is about to do was not a true resurrection. He just, uh, you know, regained his consciousness. Oh, no. Lazarus, folks, I don't mean to be crude, but he was as dead as dead could be. That's the point. Now it goes on, verse 18. Now Bethany was near uh, Jerusalem, about two miles off. Have you heard of Jerusalem lately? Yeah. So, uh, hallelujah is right. So, listen, folks. I really actually made this a matter of prayer before I got here tonight. And that is that I would stick to the text <laughs> and not wander. But uh, it's not going to happen. So, we're going to get to the text. But please, there's this big, huge Jewish elephant in the room, <laughs> and uh, we have to address it. Uh, just a few things. There are political ramifications for what happened on May 14th, two days ago. I know this, and that is uh, the, uh, our president uh, followed through on his promise to move the embassy of the United States from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and in so doing, uh, he acknowledged fully the legitimacy of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, I don't want to get into... Well, look at that. Holy moly. That's wonderful. I'll tell you what I like about Sagemont Church. You are not required here to have any particular political affiliation. We won't do that. You're, you're free to vote for whom you want. Do the best you can. So I don't want to argue anything from a political point of view, and yet I can't deny the facts. In 1995... Our Congress enacted a piece of legislation. The acronym standing for it is GERA, G-E-R-A, the Jerusalem Embassy Relocation Act. That's what it's called, Jerusalem Embassy Relocation Act. And our Congress, both parties, almost unanimously in 1995, enacted a piece of legislation, meaning it's a law that our embassy would be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, what happened between 1995 and 2018? 
Well, every president since that piece of legislation was enacted, both Republicans and Democrats, I, I, well, we're not going to tell anybody what side to be on politically. That's a matter of Christian liberty. But I just want to state the fact. So that means President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, uh, each stated, you can check it out, each man stated his commitment to move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But there, they left a bit of a loophole in that piece of legislation, and each standing president was given the option every six months of reviewing this plan, and if in the judgment of that president, uh, he thought moving the embassy to Jerusalem would in some fashion endanger our national security interests, the president could delay the move six months and review it another six months. So since 1995, every six months, whoever the president is, has, uh, has said, no, not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet. So President Trump uh, decided, yeah, now's, now's the time. And so he uh, uh, moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, May 14th, uh, 2018, to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the founding of the modern state of Israel. Now, folks, I don't need to get political. Can we just get logical? There is... Can you explain to me the existence of Israel in any other way except uh, of divine intervention? If so, you have more faith than I do. That is not a political point of view. I, let's just be logical. How could a people outside their own homeland for in excess of 2,000 years come through the Holocaust in which its population was decimated, six million put in the ovens, six million scattered, disenfranchised people uh, survive, and they come in, back into their homeland and are able to resurrect their ancient language, Hebrew, uh, the same language spoken by Abraham Isaac and Jacob, they get a piece of land uh, consisting of 60% desert, 60% desert, folks, 60%. And they say, we'll take it, we'll take it, because beggars cannot be choosers. And so they move into the land, and, some, and then they're attacked the very next day by three Arab armies, well-equipped. They got nothing. They have no standing army. They don't have anything. You tell me how uh, you could explain the survival of the modern state of Israel. Now, you can say those Jews are good fighters. They're smart, this, that, and the other thing. But you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, folks, what happened does not equal human ingenuity. It's God fulfilling his promises. If you don't see that, I don't, we're done. I, mean, I don't... But that's a God thing. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So on the 70th anniversary of the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel, our president has decided to move the embassy. And it's quite a celebration to the Israelis and, in my opinion, to any Bible student, regardless of political affiliation. Do you know, in, way back in 1948, President Harry S. Truman was the first national leader to recognize the legitimacy of the modern state of Israel. Seventy years later, a president whose name also begins with T at the end. Don't read too much into that. I know some people are reading too much. But I'm just telling you, he also staked out our ground as Americans and decided that we're going to recognize uh, the capital of Israel as being Jerusalem. By the way, Israel is the only sovereign nation in the world not permitted to determine the location of its own capital. Did you know that? It's like some people from another place, another country, telling us you cannot establish Washington, D.C. as your capital. We want it to be who knows where. Well, we would say, our, who are you? what are you talking about? We're a sovereign nation. We can determine the location of our capital 
anytime we want. Okay, now forget about all that uh, stuff that really smatters a little bit of being political. Folks, do you know in the Bible, Jerusalem is mentioned in excess of 700 times? As the capital of Israel, 3,000 years ago, declared so by David under the sovereignty of God. It's never been anyone else's capital. This ought not to be uh, earth-shattering and new to simply recognize President or, or Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel he made an interesting statement. He said President Trump made history because he's simply recognizing history. Folks, that's the historical capital of Israel. It has been for excess of 3,000 years. This is not new. No one has ever claimed it. Even when Jerusalem was under Jordanian control before Israel uh, regained possession of it, it after the, what's called the Six-Day War, 1967, no Arab nation expressed any interest in Jerusalem. Nobody laid claim to it. No one had any interest whatsoever. It's only since Israel has been back in the land that all of a sudden people want to lay their hands on Jerusalem. And I'll tell you why. Because Satan read the Bible and found out that's where Jesus is returning to. <clears throat> and he doesn't want Jesus to receive glory in a reestablished temple there. He doesn't want the nations of the world, as the Bible says, to go up to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles together. He doesn't want people to fall at the feet of the King of Kings, and therefore he foolishly thinks if he can get control of Jerusalem, put it into non-Jewish hands, maybe it'll keep the Jewish Messiah from returning. Come on. It's not going to happen. So uh, anyway, I think it's quite an exciting uh, day. I think we're living in a day where prophecies being fulfilled at a rapid clip, more rapidly than ever. And we ought to be quite excited. Okay, uh, now back to the text. I did pretty good, not too bad. Not too bad for me. But anyway, so Bethany, it says, is near Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Listen, this isn't important. Some people say, what's the big deal? Well, ask Jesus that. He hovered over the city on the, on the Mount of Olives, and he wept over it. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a mothering hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Jesus wept. That's the second time in the scripture we have a recording of Jesus weeping. Lord willing, next week we'll read about the first time he did that. It's in this particular chapter. Folks, that is an intensely important city. Now, I think supporting Israel's right to the land doesn't mean we have contempt for non-Jewish, Arab, Muslim, Palestinian people. No way. We pray that the gospel would go forth because no soul is worth more than any other. Jesus requires or is interested in all being saved. And a Jewish soul is not worth more than an Arab soul. So more than ever before, we ought to pray that the gospel go forth. You know when it says in the Bible, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Do you know Jerusalem is the only city in the Bible we are commanded to pray for? Of course, that doesn't mean we don't pray for Houston. But I'm telling you, the only city we are commanded to pray for, Psalm 122, verse 6, is Jerusalem. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll just offer you my opinion. I think it means pray now that the residents of Jerusalem would welcome the gospel message. 
the gospel of peace into their hearts now so that they would be ready to open the gates of Jerusalem to the king of kings when he comes the second time. I think that's what it means. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, because of the close proximity of Jerusalem to Bethany, we're told it's only two miles away. Many Jews were able to go to Martha and Mary so as to console them concerning their brother Lazarus. It's a good ministry. We do it a lot around here simply to offer condolences to those in our membership who've lost a loved one. We never say, dry up those tears, do we? We never say, aren't you over it yet? Oh, no. We put our arm around that person literally or figuratively. We send a card and note. We attend a funeral service. We allow that person the permission to go through the grieving process. And that's what these folks were doing. So they went to offer words of consolation to Martha and Mary. Now, by the way, this whole thing tells me, as I think about these sisters who are grieving, though they were the objects of the Lord's affection, this tells me that uh, uh, we who are loved by God are not immune from the problems and pains of life. Did you know that? Now, some of us think, and I'm prone to it, so are you, that it's inconsistent to be loved by God and to suffer at the same time. It's a little hard to reconcile the two, but I'm telling you, they're not inconsistent. The love of God for us and our sometimes very hurtful and painful experience here, they're not inconsistent. And the evidence of it is that these two things, God's love and our suffering, they're brought together on the cross, aren't they? There is the Son of God. This is my only begotten Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus suffered. That told me that suffering and sonship are not incompatible, not for Jesus, not for you and I. The guarantee is not that we won't suffer, but that we will not suffer for no good reason, but that the Lord Jesus will use it for our eternal good and for his glory. And so Mary and Martha are suffering now. They're grieving. People went to console them. And it says in verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into the text, but I wonder if this is kind of a reflection of their different temperament and personality styles. We read about Martha and Mary in another place in the gospel, too. Martha seems to be a little more forceful and outgoing. Man, she charges out there to meet the Lord. Jesus. He didn't even get to Bethany just yet. But Mary remains in the house, perhaps a little more quiet, maybe a little more reserved. Now, what was Mary doing? Well, she was there with a whole house full of people, and they were doing something called sitting shiva. Shiva comes from the Hebrew uh, number sheva. The number seven in Hebrew is sheva because it was a set-aside, very formal, specified period of time, seven days, in which grieving people were permitted to do nothing but grieve. We observe it even today, and today... The grieving folks would cover the mirrors of their home with a cloth because they don't have to spend time looking good, don't have to put on makeup or anything like that. They're permitted not to be at the top of their game. They're given permission just to grieve. And sometimes uh, they'll, they'll cut their clothes as an indication of grief. They'll sit on, on chairs, uh, hardened wooden chairs, People in the community who are coming will bring food items so that those who grieve don't have to be distracted by this. Now, there's more grieving after this, but the seven days are a formal period of time where the grieving people are allowed to grieve. I was sharing in our 
Bible study this past Sunday. We, we Jews don't have a lot right, but I think we have grieving down pat. We know how to do it without stuffing our feelings. We're just not going to get ulcers. We, we just let it out. That's very healthy. Very, very healthy. And so that's what's happening. So Mary is staying back because the house is full of people. They're sitting Shiva uh, together. Now, outgoing Martha rushes out to meet the Lord. And it says in verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't take it as a criticism. I take it as, the, as her a respectful expectation of the Lord. Uh, Martha knew things about the Lord Jesus, but Martha, like us, didn't know all she had to know. Remember we spoke about last week, a disciple is a learner, and Martha has a way to go, so do you and I. And so she, she doesn't understand that his literal presence would not have been required to raise her brother. I mean, there's evidence of the Lord speaking, healing from afar. You know this. He's not bound by space and time. He could have said, Lazarus, rise up. He could have remained where he was. But the point is, Martha didn't understand it. Uh, the Lord Jesus was up to something more. He wasn't limited, limited by space and time. Lazarus' death didn't take him by surprise. He was up to something that would be better for Martha and Mary and his disciples and so on. But anyway, so it says in verse 22, she goes on. Even now, she said, I, I know that whatever you ask of God, God God will give you. And here's what Jesus said to her, verse 23. Your brother will rise again. So Martha said to him, oh, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What's she talking about? Jewish people in that day had this, and Martha is one of them, had this general notion of what happens when you die. She believed in what's called the general resurrection of the dead uh, after, in the future sometime. She didn't know anything specifically and precisely about it. It was just this vague hope of, uh, uh, of, of, of resurrection after death. So she took the Lord's words, I think, <clears throat> as a standard form of comfort. You know, like we say to one another, yeah, it'll work out. It'll get better. That kind of thing. Uh, I think she thought the Lord was simply saying that. Uh, Martha, don't, don't, don't worry. Uh, you know, uh, your brother will rise up in the end, in the end, someday in, in the future. Until then, he's just as dead as dead could be. And, you know, there, there's just no hope. But well, there's a hope of some vague general resurrection down the road. She is missing the point. The Lord is not here speaking about a future resurrection. You know the story. We read the rest of it. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, not in the future, but right then. See, Martha doesn't understand the Lord's capacities just yet. So then verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am, now let me stop here for a second. I am. There are seven I am statements in John's gospel. Uh, this is the fifth of the seven Lord's I am statements. Remember he said, I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. I am the door, John 10. I'm the good shepherd, John 10. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. I'm the true vine, John chapter 15. And right here is the fifth of the seven I am statements. This is, this is striking. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, don't you see Martha had a vague general notion of resurrection. You know, you hear this all the time. When someone uh, known dies and uh, people commenting on it in the news or on TV, you know, they're always saying, 
I know he or she is in a better place. I know he or she is looking down on us now. But all of a sudden, people become expert theologians on occasions like that. I feel like screaming out, how do you know this? How did you form that? That's why I asked you to engage in your little discussion. What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And why do you think that? I know it's this wishful thinking, this vague notion that, uh, you know, death Death doesn't have the final say. Everyone's going to rise up from... But that's simply not true. That was kind of Martha's notion, to be honest with you. And so the Lord is going to teach her uh, that the resurrection is not some concept apart from him, which we will come into at some point in the future. No, no. He says, I am the resurrection. The resurrection and the life which follows resurrection is so enveloped in the person of Jesus Christ, he could say, I am those realities. Those realities don't exist apart from me. You don't sit around and wait for some vague, you know, good fortune to befall you sometime after you die. Jesus said, look no further. All of those things are couched in a relationship with me. I am the resurrection and the life. There is no resurrection. There is no life except that they are embodied in Jesus. Therefore, when he is absent, resurrection and life are absent. And when he's present, as he was right there with Martha, resurrection and life are very present. She didn't know this yet. She really was without hope. He is the resurrection and the life. I'll tell you why. Because he's the source, did you know this, of everything that lives. Nothing that lives, lives independent of Jesus who gave life to everything that lives. He is the only living one whose life is not derived by anyone or anything else. But any living thing, human, plant, animal, owes its life to the giver of life, this Jesus. He is the life. Therefore, he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. And because he is, he has the power to raise the dead. So Martha had an abstract belief in what takes place in the last day. But the Lord came, I think, intending to teach her not about an abstract belief in what happens when you die, but in a personal, personalized belief in him who alone can provide resurrection and life. So I hope you came up with the right answer. What happens when you die if you're a Christian? I immediately rise up from death and go to be in the presence of the Lord. Now the answer to the why question, because I am united with the, by faith with the one who is the resurrection and the life. Now I'm telling you, apart from Jesus, all this hopeful expectation, everyone rises from the dead. Well, man, that's going to be a hope uh, that's going to be deferred. That's simply not true. The Lord Jesus said, this concept of resurrection and life has no existence, no vitality, no dynamic to it apart from me. You cannot separate those realities apart from me. Now, though he came to teach, he did, about eternal life, he didn't merely come to teach about it. He came to embody it. And what's more, he came to enable it. Therefore, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, get this. He who believes in me. Do you have that verb? He who believes in me, in your Bible. I hope you have that. I'll tell you why. In mine, it does not say, he who pleases me. It does not say that. And that's a good thing, because nobody does. 
Does not say who he who pleases me. It says he who believes in me. No, no. It does not say he who he who uh, promises stuff to me. Well, that's a good thing because we break our promises. It doesn't say that, right? He who notice it doesn't say he who works up to my expectations. It does. It does not say that. Isn't that a good thing? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Folks, don't make this complicated here. It seems to me what the Lord is about to declare, he came to offer, is a function of belief, faith. What does that mean? Confidence in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, that's what it says, has something. That person has something in Jesus that transcends physical death, and it is eternal life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Folks, to know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. To have Jesus is to have resurrection and life. So the text says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now that doesn't merely mean that the person who knows Christ and dies will, die, will live at some mysterious, vague time in the future. No, 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 no. The person who dies in Christ immediately enters into the living presence of Christ because he is united with Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. So people who believe in Jesus are not immune from death. We know this, don't we? No, we're not immune from physical death. But people who believe in Jesus are immune from eternal spiritual death, which separates us from Jesus who is the giver of life. Now, since he is the resurrection and the life, his people will, upon death, rise again. And having risen, they will live forever. Why? How? It's because of their union by faith with him who is the resurrection and the life. Now, Mary and Martha are grieving the death of their brother Lazarus. We can understand that. So the Lord, in essence, says to them, Mary and Martha, I am exactly whom your dearly beloved brother, Lazarus, needs. In fact, I'm exactly whom everybody who dies needs. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. Now, that's for Lazarus, because he died. But here's something for Mary and Martha. They're not dead yet. Verse 26. And everyone who lives, they're living, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Look, Lazarus is dead. The Lord is exactly who Lazarus needs to rise up from death. But Martha and Mary are alive. And the Lord is exactly who they need so as to never die. Now, hang on. Wait just a second. Believers do die. Yeah, but don't misunderstand. Only physically. Never spiritually. Believers do die temporarily, never permanently. When a believer dies, that person's death doesn't have the last word. In fact, a believer's death inaugurates new life in Christ, for he is the resurrection and the life. Now, Martha believed that the resurrection to eternal life was an event, kind of apart from Jesus, and he showed her, he's about to show her, in raising her brother, that resurrection is based not on some future vague abstraction, but resurrection 
to new life is based on union with the resurrection and the life, Jesus, by faith. So folks, when we believe in Jesus, we come to be united with him. And when we are united with him, his resurrection power and life become ours as well. But here's the point. For Jesus to be the resurrection, he must defeat death. This he did. Up from the grave, he arose. I'm telling you, Satan rejoiced with regard to the crucifixion. But man, he hates the empty tomb. I know the most common symbol of our rich faith is a cross. It's a beautiful symbol of love, love and sacrifice. But I think the cross without the empty tomb doesn't get us where we need to get. I'm so glad on our campus both symbols are there, don't, aren't you? <laughs> cross and the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb that tells us uh, Jesus has won victory over the last enemy. You know how it says in the Bible, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your power? The sting of death, it's removed. How? By the resurrected Jesus, who's the first, first fruits of life after death. First fruits mean there's other fruit to come. That's us, believers in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Now, why am I taking all this time? I'll tell you why. Because it matters. And you know why this subject matters? It matters. It ought to matter to each of us because each of us is going to die. Isn't that an encouraging word? I mean, it's a reality, folks. Each of us is going to die. So uh, the question I asked you to interact about, everyone ought ought, ought ought to wrestle with. What is going to happen to you when death happens to you? Because death is going to happen to you. What will happen to you upon the occasion of your death? Well, I want to tell you, your answer depends upon the answer you give to the question Jesus put to Martha at the end of verse 26. Now, remember, he started in verse 25 with this claim. I'll repeat it. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked Martha, you see it in your text. Then he asked Martha, do you believe this? That's what he said. Notice, he is not calling for a vague, general kind of belief. Notice what he's saying. He is asking something quite specifically. He is saying, not do you believe, do you believe this? Which begs the question, what do you mean by this? It's what he just declared to be true. Please, let me repeat it for you. He said, he made this claim, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, not works for me, pleases me, makes promises to me. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus said to Martha, but I think he's saying it to us too. Do you believe this? And so I ask you, do you? Have you ever told the Lord you do? Have you ever said, Lord Jesus, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. And that if I put my faith in you, you who suffered and died, that I might live. You who suffered and died to pay the penalty for my sin. You who did that for me. I believe if I put my faith in you who rose up from death, I somehow am united with you by faith in your crucifixion and resurrection 
as well. Have you ever said to the Lord Jesus, thank you for doing that? Have you ever said, oh God, come into my life. I have room in my heart for thee. (laughs) Impart to me the pardon for my sin, which has separated me and rendered me spiritually dead. Do you know all of us are the walking dead apart from Christ? We're not physically dead yet. All of us are the walking dead. Do you know we've been conceived in sin? Do you know sin separates us from a holy God? And so Jesus said, yes, but I offered my life that you might live. Have you ever expressed to Jesus your gratitude for that? Have you ever expressed to him your interest in that being true of you? So I ask you, do you believe this to be true for you? Is Jesus the one who suffered and died for you, rose up from death, and thus made a way for you upon your death to rise up from your physical death so as to be with him forever? Could I beseech you, if you've not expressed that in your own words to the Lord Jesus, why don't you do it before you leave here tonight? We have a few more minutes here. Why don't you do so in your own words right where you are, silently, and maybe you'll allow us to help you to confirm that decision by visiting with us in the Connection Center when our pastor dismisses us a little while later tonight. Folks, this is very, very important because God has provided for us everything we need to live forever with him, and he waits for us to accept his gift of eternal life. And we could leave here tonight. Pastor said this a million times. I don't think he's being overly dramatic. It happens. We can leave here tonight and get hit by some drunk driver. and That, that kind of seals it. And uh, I think if that happened, Jesus would weep. Mm. Because it's not necessary for that to happen. He has done everything necessary for you and I to live with him forevermore. Death does not have the last word. Up from the graves grave, he arose. And in union with him, we arise uh, from death as well to live with him forevermore. I just beseech you. I just, I don't don't know what what to say, except uh, ask God to so stir you up tonight that you realize you're separated from him. You know that. You can tell. And I'll I'll label it for you. That's, that's, That's what sin does. Sin doesn't mean you're the worst person in the world, but you surely fall short of God's standards. You've got to be You've got to be willing to admit that. Your sin has separated. You render you, in essence, spiritually dead. A spiritually dead person can't do anything for himself or herself. When you accept Jesus, who is the resurrection of the life, you know what he does? He gives us new life. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Oh, my goodness. It's like, oh, my goodness, I'm about to come up with a phrase you never heard before. It's like being born again. Spiritually born again. And you know, you know what the living Savior does? He comes into our life. I don't know how the, all this works. I don't have to. It, it, this is how it happens. When we invite him to, he comes into our life. And the evidence of it, it's called in the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. And you, know, you know what characterizes it? Love, joy, peace. How about this one? A goodness, kindness. I love this one. Self-control. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you find out, oh my goodness, I'm new. Already I'm experiencing God's resurrection power. Don't, don't, don't turn your back on the Lord Jesus. Don't, don't, don't do it. Who has exposed himself to you on a, on a cross and to me. All by grace. Don't try to make sense of that. You won't. 
All Jesus says, he just says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you? It's not some intellectual, it means I believe you did all this, even for one such as me. Oh, God, come into my life, be my savior. I don't, I don't think you, you're guaranteed tomorrow, neither am I. I think you'd be, you ought to be sure. So the next time we have a little group discussion, what's going to happen to you when you die? You can just say, I will go to be immediately and forever with my Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, why? Because I've done everything he required of me, and that is to accept his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf, a sinner saved by grace. Oh, God in heaven, in the power of your mighty Holy Spirit, I pray you would work in the lives of ones, maybe even here tonight, who've not had that kind of conversation with you, acknowledging sin and inviting you to enter into their lives as Savior, as resurrection in life. Well, God in heaven, only you can convert the soul. So I pray you would convince those who don't yet know you of three things, sin, their own judgment, it's going to come, you're a righteous judge. And righteousness, meaning, how could that person be right with you? It's by accepting your son, the mediator between God and man. So I pray you would do your work today. Oh, God, we would be so blessed if even one lost person would be saved tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.